I've been reading your uh, biography on your website. You've worked with a number of composers. Tell us about your origins uh, with with music. What what really sparked this as a passion for you? You know, I would have to say growing up in the era of Star Wars and Superman and E.T., Indiana Jones, all of which were scored by John John Williams. Williams. Pretty much that planted the seed early on. You know, it was pretty much the... my earliest memories were going to the drive-in and seeing movies that were – that was the beginning of the blockbuster and, and the, the, the big Hollywood score and the, you know, the, the big payoff moments with, you know, with the big theme blaring and everything. And, and it was just an exciting time for, for music and, and John Williams was and is, you know, the – will always be the king of film music. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, you know – three years old when when star wars came out so i didn't exactly know what was going on musically but i i knew that when the themes were playing i knew that that that's that was something special well they were resonating for you on a personal level definitely i always wanted to be involved with movies on some level whether it was artistically or doing special effects or something but at some point being involved with music i just that became like the most obvious option. What colors do you like to play with when it when it comes when it comes to music? What are you more interested in um, in working on? Like a more classical sounding? Uh, if, if you had your if you had your your choice, would you go for a more classical sounding project, or would you go for something more mechanical, more industrial, more more techno, more twenty first century? If you had your pick of any project, what would you really pr- go after? Well, when you said colors, I was going to say fuchsia, but I think I might have missed the. <laughs> I like the idea of variety, so so it's hard to say that there's any one thing I'd love to do. I also love the idea of doing a mixture of things mm-hmm. in projects, you know, like orchestral mixed with electronic, mixed with sounds that that I've created from from nothing or from manipulating real world sounds. Um, that kind of thing's exciting for me. I think every composer wants to do something that's never been heard before, and that's the absolute hardest thing for, for any of us to, to do. Yeah, that magic formula is really far out there, isn't it? Do something completely original. Exactly. Everything, every once in a while, something will, will just pop out of nowhere, and, and everyone will be like, why didn't I think of that? Mm-hmm. And it happens every once in a while, and I guess we all just want to want to be want to have our own you know stab at that that kind of thing but isn't every musician influenced by any other musician that they listen to doesn't it all seep into your subconscious absolutely you know all all we are as as creative people are we take in everything that we see and hear we process it in our own way and then come up with something that's sort of a conglomeration of all those things and you know we hope that it's at least worthy of, you know, being heard in the same context as some of the influences we have. Do you ever uh, create a piece and then a few days later say, oh, man, that sounds like something that I've I've heard before. I have a friend who's uh, uh, doing the Stargate Worlds uh, score, and he had been writing a piece for several days, and then he played it back, and it dawned on him that he had basically ripped off the entire... Uh, dungeon theme for the classic Legend of Zelda. Yeah, sure, that that does happen. Sometimes it happens while I'm writing it, 
it's usually better if it happens while I'm writing it. I'm like, oh, this sounds a lot like like that, so I better go get away from that while I can. Is that a constant scare of a composer that you're ripping off someone else's work, or at some point do you just have to give up and say, I'm doing the best I can with this, and I'm trying not to rip anyone off, but I'm only human? You know, every time you sign a contract, you sign a, a, a certificate of authorship saying that I wrote this, and if you get if the company gets sued for copyright infringement, I'm taking full responsibility for that. Mm. So there's there's a there's a, a legal fear of that, but more importantly, I mean, nobody wants to be known as the guy that rips everyone off. I mean, mm-hmm. there's that that personal uh, professional feeling, but at the same time, film music is a language in a sense because every film. Every film score ever written sounds a little bit like the other ones, and, and there are certain musical phrases, chords, uh, progressions that, that all sound slightly similar. You can't really do a sci-fi score or a horror score or an action score without borrowing a little bit from, from other people. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you're going to end up with something that completely alienates the audience. And Or if you're lucky, you'll come up with a whole brand new approach but yeah, you, you have to throw in a little bit of influence from other things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so when at what point in your uh, youth or uh, post-youth did you decide that art was not the direction or like physical art and drawings and things like that was not the direction that you wanted to go in and you wanted to go in with music it's something about drawing art and music for me are are both very interesting creative outlets, but something about music, the fact that you can experience it. I'd rather listen to a piece of music for three minutes than stare at a piece of art for three minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to say that there isn't a lot to be gained from from viewing a, a painting or no, something. No, that's your preference, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, even better, I'd, I'd love to you know, listen to a piece of music combined with an image or a series of images. I, you know, the idea... I started to see how music, when combined with with art or with pictures, became so much more powerful than a piece of music could be on its own. It took on a whole new uh, level of, of emotional and, and intellectual influence and just seemed so exciting, the idea of, of doing that kind of thing. The snowball started rolling, and, and I, I really started to see how how exciting music and especially music to picture could be. Tell us about the path that led you to Stargate. How did that, how did well, that ball start, get, start to get rolling? A friend introduced me to Joel um, back in the day when I was setting up equipment and helping out other composers. What season of Stargate was this in when you were first introduced to Joel? Mm. I, I started right before season three. Okay. Uh, he had just wrapped season two. He, he was moving to a new house and a new studio. I helped him move... Uh, you know, move in and get set up in his new studio and stayed on as his assistant. And, and uh, over the years, did everything from mixing to orchestrating to helping manage his sample library and um, eventually ended up getting to ride in the show, which was a great opportunity. And when did that happen? Like I said, around season eight, I started on SG-1. And then uh, for Atlantis, I started about halfway through season three, actually. Oh, yeah, okay. 
Okay. Now, for writing on SG One, how does how does or for writing on Stargate, how does this work? Do you pick up Joel's scraps or where he didn't have a chance to get to, or does he say, you know what, this this scene, I'd like Neil to take a stab at this scene, either because I don't think that it's it suits what I like to focus on, or I don't have time for it, or I think his tastes are are perfect for this. How does this work? We have a, a finely tuned machine at this point. Rick Chaddock, the music editor, and Joel will, will spot the show and decide where the music's going to go and, and come up with a list of cues. Mm-hmm. Basically, Joel will usually see what kind of direction the show's going to go and, and if it involves a new character or a new uh, vibe or something that requires a new theme, he'll, he'll develop that. And then based on that, we'll, we'll kind of see where our individual strengths or our, just what makes the best sense time-wise um, I'll go in and basically fill in the gaps a lot of the time, you know, and then sometimes I'll, you know, get a chance to do something really exciting. And, and what's always fun for me is staying true to the themes that he's established over the years and, and finding a good payoff moment to, to bring in this person's theme or that person's theme. And the fact that the fans really are very keen on that kind of thing, it, it's, it really, it's it's great inspiration knowing that they that they pay attention to that stuff and it's not lost on on the audience. Mm-hmm. You know? Obviously, Joel's sound is signature Stargate sound. He, he's been working on this since Children of the Gods and all the way up through Enemy of the Gate and and the the SG One DVD movies and now, of course, Universe. Do you find yourself in conflict when you're creating music uh, for Stargate that you have? to go more with Joel's signature sound and not your, your own signature sound? How, how similar and different are they when, when you compare the two together? You know, how, do you, how, how do you handle a situation like this? Because you, know, you want to obviously be your own musician, yet you have to service a very specific sound on a show. Yeah, I, I think I, over the years, I've, I've gotten so comfortable with the sound that Joel established that it's a very seamless kind of thing. Uh, there's, there's been times where we've looked back at old shows and, and heard something and been like, did I write that or did Joel write that? And we didn't even, couldn't even tell because me as a, as a composer myself, we do have differences in our, in our individual styles, but I think they complement each other well. And especially in the case of Stargate shows, we're all going for the same sound that that's been established and, and, we, we work pretty seamlessly, I think. Well, you're working from the same palette of colors, so I would imagine that uh, anything that comes out must... Not only does it have to sound reasonably seamless, but uh, it, it should by by nature of how you guys have set yourselves up. Yeah. I mean, even on a yeah on a technical level, we, we use the same samples and and we have the same software and everything, and, and we, talk, we talk frequently about, let's use this kind of instrument or that kind of instrument, and... So yeah, on a technical level, we're we're very much in sync, and then on a musical level, we're both also influenced by a lot of the same people. The precedent has been set for science fiction music in, in the past, and we we borrow from that as much as as much as uh, you know Joel's established a specific sound of Stargate. Now each episode is not scored in a vacuum. I would imagine you guys are working on numerous episodes simultaneously, or do you take it one at a time? Well, it's usually one at a time. Okay. Um, but there are occasionally there'll be like 
one re- for one reason or another, we'll we'll have to jump back and forth. But it's it's usually because they the episodes get mixed about once a week or a little a little less frequently than that. And so usually we would focus on one episode and then the next. And you see the light at the end of the tunnel, and that light is the next show coming at you. If we're at the beginning of the season and uh, these episodes that have been shot are just now airing, how long do you guys have to score it before we see it all on air? How much time has passed? Because you guys are usually near the butt end of, of post, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, we usually we're scoring the episodes uh, a week before they mix, and then... I would say another uh, two or three weeks after that, they do like a, a second mix and, and finalize everything, mm-hmm. and then it's pretty much ready ready for broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm trying to think of, of in the past how things have gone. You know, we've maybe started working on them in, in, in April, and they've ended up airing in, in July, something like that. It, it depends a great deal. So mm-hmm. we're, we're not like scoring them a week before they air or anything right. like that. You're not like Law and Order or CSI, you know. They were no, filmed a month no. ago, and here they are. Yes. No, no, not like that. About how much of uh, an episode, percentage-wise, will will contain original music? How how do you allocate this time? Now, I'm sure when there were 40 episodes a year, it had to have been hell. Um, and now there are 20, and it gives you, I'm sure, a little bit more breathing room to dedicate to each episode. When when you get us when you get an episode in, do you typically watch the episode and find the places where there are music or do you say okay each episode generally will start off with 15 minutes of music and then we'll we'll add or subtract depending on the content of the episode how does that work when you get an episode every episode's different okay. we treat each one like a little movie in itself um they they range from the minimum uh you know 12 minutes maybe is, is one of the lightest shows we've done. They've, they've gone all the way up to like 33 minutes wow. out of out of a 44-minute episode. Um, and they, they kind of hover around 22 to 26 minutes maybe. Some of the episodes that are that tend to be uh, more driven by exposition and, and some of the very strong acting episodes, like The Shrine, for example, with Rodney uh, decaying in his, his mental state. The acting really drove that episode, and there wasn't a lot of need for music. Uh, on the other end of things, you know, you get some of the season finales or you know the mid-season finale, like um, Lost Tribe and First Contact. Exactly. Um, that kind of show, it's like very action driven. You got a lot of space battles and, and that kind of thing. And um, those will be heavier shows. Mm-hmm. So we just take it take it episode by episode. I really love First Contact and Lost Tribe and how we had uh, in First Contact, we had uh, a very mechanical, very abrupt sound for this new enemy when they invade Atlantis base. Did you have any part in creating that sound? 
No, that was Joel did that one. Joel did the 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 queue where they actually attacked the base, as well as a uh, kind of a theme for them. And we were able to develop that over the course of the two shows. Mm-hmm. And we also brought in because you know they ended up being in the Asgard. in the Asgard theme as well who kind of did a darker version of it. Yeah, it it was minor when the Asgard revealed himself. You guys switched from the happy-go-lucky Asgard music to a dark Asgard Mm -hmm. just with that chord change. That might have been me, but um, (laughs) but again, you know, I was very keen to use the original theme and, you know, and I think the great part about that particular set of episodes, those two episodes, was was it's like a movie in a sense. You have a story arc that that goes over two hours and it's a great opportunity to introduce a theme and build it over time so by the end of the of the two episodes you really have a musical identity that that every time the you know the the theme comes in for the bad guys it really ties everything together very well mm-hmm. well it's pulling on our emotions and it's establishing if not only on the screen if it's not actually happening on the screen at that moment, that something involving them is going on. Yes. You know, it, it does a really good job of tying things together. That's that's one of the great things about, you know, about uh, your guys' music is it makes us remember that, you know, things can be going on that are not necessarily on the screen at that moment that we should exactly. be recognizing in our hearts. Exactly. Sometimes you score what's on screen. Sometimes you score what's not going on on screen. Well, there's so much more. That's happening on these shows. That's not going on on screen. Exactly. That music is the language of emotion. I can't remember who said that. And you have to speak to that for for such a character-driven show as these. What are some of the moments you, with your time on uh, on Stargate that you are most proud of in terms of uh, what was uh, put out in the final cuts? Are there any cues that you are particularly fond of that we can discuss? There's been so many, but I would say... Uh, you know, season nine of SG One was, you know, especially musically for us, was an immense challenge that we had to basically. We had so many new characters and themes and storylines to, uh, to kind of, uh, you know, to come up with to, to kind of kick things off strong. Um, but one one fun thing um, I remember doing was the. Uh, the, the duel between Mitchell in Avalon Part 2, the knight and, and Mitchell's duel was, was a lot of fun. I wanted to do something very kind of swashbuckling and, and exciting.
you know, another from that season was uh, Powers That Be. I wrote a theme for that one that was kind of the the counterpoint to the Ori invasion theme. So it was kind of a, a more somber, Lawrence of Arabia-esque kind of uh, theme that went with the, the villagers uh, getting sick from the, the Ori uh, disease. favorite was um, in season four of Atlantis in quarantine but when Shepard has to climb to the top of the, the tower the yeah tower. that was a fun a fun scene you know had that the big shot of the of the you know camera panning around the the top of the tower and that was a good opportunity to bring in a variation of the Atlantis theme. First strike. Speaking of scenes that involve a lot of sound effects, a lot of uh, CGI, there was the scene where the, the the nuke gets deployed. Yeah. And there's that long tracking shot that follows it down to the replicator planet. Yeah, it's like a minute long. It was challenging. It was also really exciting. But one thing I'm not sure if you realize is when we first get those scenes, it usually is like a minute long uh, white text on yeah, black it's just tiles. Basically saying, yeah, you know, missile goes down, and we usually we usually wait on those and for as long as we can until we get some 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 rough footage, and they they tend to give us like wireframe yeah. or things like that. But it involves a lot of imagination, and I I've probably tend to overcompensate, thinking, you know, not knowing what it is, I better go all out on this because chances are it's going to be a huge grand shot because they always deliver on those. I think, you know, basically whenever they go to an effect shot, it's usually something pretty grand, so it's it's hard to overdo something for those. And especially one, you know, if they're... My first thought on that was that, you know, if this is going to be a, a minute-long tracking shot, it's going to be something pretty spectacular. 
I didn't really end up seeing the, the final visuals until I saw it on the air and uh, was, was very impressed with you know, what they came up with for that. When Atlantis is submerging for the first time, or the, you know, they're submerging to get away from the, the beam of... My first instinct was I pulled out the CD from Rising and, and thought, okay, what did Joel do when, when, the, when Atlantis was, was rising? Why don't I do something like that? But you know, do it backwards. <laughs> so you know, I didn't take, I didn't literally do it backwards. But you know, I, I I tried, you know, to to create a sense of, hey, we're 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 back to the beginning. We're full circle. We're, you know, uh, so so I, I kind of brought that back musically, and and, and again, you know, that the the sort of recreating the feeling that I got when I first heard Joel's rising cue, which is one mm. of my favorite things he's ever written. Mm. Uh, I'm, tr- you know, trying to, to evoke that same kind of feeling, but, but differently knowing that, you know, it's a darker moment. I'm very proud of that moment and being able to tie it all in with, you know, the, the previously established stuff. done a lot of the space battle kind of things that have ended up getting buried behind the sound of yeah. lasers and stuff and but that doesn't mean I you know that I cut any corners or anything I, I'll get in there and I'll do the most intricately layered you know bombastic thing I can possibly come up with just just for for the fun of it knowing that once it gets into the you know, show behind the F three hundred twos and everything flying around. Mm, that, darts, that, yeah, yeah you're, you're probably not going to hear it all that detailed. You know, but there was that the scene in, in Enemy at the Gate when when uh, Shepard was they're flying over Area fifty one and uh, the darts are attacking. Uh, that that you know that was one of those cases. I had a lot of fun with that, and I just I love writing that big, grand, very intense action stuff. And um, in the final broadcast, you can you can kind of hear it poking through behind the the lasers. You kind of hear it, Aww. but um, you know, I mean, not that you know, not that I would expect them to go all music with that or anything. But still, is it heartbreaking when you? No, when no. There, there's a there's a moment, a, a specific moment that you that you thought the music shined in and it gets drowned. I've come to accept the fact that that you know it's 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 in the best interest of the show at any given time for you know if if. If the moment is about the sound effects and about the space battle, then then that's you know what you should be hearing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little tough sometimes to watch it on on TV because the TV signal is actually very compressed, 
mm-hmm. and and the sound tends to get you know very you, it's not very dynamic you don't really hear a lot of the detail so on the dvds there's a lot more subtlety to the sound you get to hear a lot more of the details what do you think of uh, in that, in terms of that respect what do you think about the uh, the movement towards hd television is it um, about damn time or is it not c- close enough or what uh, it's it's yeah it's definitely about time i mean i have a blu-ray player and i i wish they had more movies for it and i understand they're they're waiting for the market to get saturated before they put out stuff like star wars and, and the like so that we can buy it for the 17th time exactly yeah <laughs> exactly and then we'll wait for hd blu-ray and then buy it again and uh, hd hd dvd <laughs> Just plug into our brains, why don't you? Get it over with. I know. I saw Coraline last night in 3D, and I was so blown away by the visuals and that. I can't wait until regular television on TV is in 3D, and, and, and we have implants in our eyes that we don't even need glasses. I saw you on the Midway in yes. San Diego. What was it like to finally sit with a group of fans uh, who are fans of your music and your work? What was it like to... to be saturated by Stargate Continuum uh, with the rest of them? You know, a lot more exciting than sitting in my living room and watching it on TV. I'll definitely yeah. say that. Yeah. Uh, no, it was, it, was, it was tremendously exciting. And I, I got very emotional watching it on a big screen. And, and you know, and, and just, just, just the excitement that not only, not only the fans had for it, but, you know, the crew and everyone was just really excited about, you know, how well it came out. And excited to have been involved with it, and I, I just I, I'm really proud of that movie. It's mm-hmm. it's it really came out wonderful, and 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 yeah, seeing it with the fans was definitely an extra, an added bonus to it. Except when the kawoosh blew out the speakers. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and I was afraid that they wouldn't be able to repair them. I was like, oh my god. I'm not sure everyone was even had even realized that the front speakers were out because you could still hear the the right. music and the sounds. But because you know the, the dialogue comes from the front, that you know we're just we're just hearing music coming from behind us and no sound effects and no <laughs> dialogue. So captions. It's like they went a little artier with this than I was expecting. So with Stargate Universe, um, obviously I know we, we don't want to we, we can't talk very much about it, nor do I want us to talk a lot about it. But we're going for a darker show, and uh, a show that's that's more akin to a scale and grandeur of Lost beats Battlestar Galactica with with Stargate uh, on a ship, and uh, we're on the on the edge of the universe. Things are dark. Power is is scarce, energy is scarce. What kinds of palettes do you anticipate playing with with this show? At the moment, I believe Joel is is working on establishing that palette of colors and, and you know themes and that kind of thing. And um, I'm anxious, as, as everyone is, to, to hear what he comes up with. You haven't and heard anything yet? No. Pretty much everything I know about the show I know from Gateworld. <laughs> like, I get all my Stargate news from Gate World because you guys get it first. 
at first I was paying attention to all the news about the show and, and seeing what, what they were doing casting wise and all that. Mm-hmm. And at some point I just, I decided to sit back and I'm just going to wait until I see a, uh, an edited episode, see how it all cuts together, see how the dynamics are of the cast and the, see how it all plays. And I'm sure by that point, Joel and I will have discussed where he wants to take things musically and, and let's go from there. Cause until I see the show, I, I'm just, you know, I don't want to make any preconceptions about it. Mm-hmm. When do you anticipate receiving the first cut of air? Uh, no idea. I really don't okay. know. Is it is it just random when it comes in, or is there usually like a date when you can expect it? There's there yeah I think they have a, a schedule that at this point is is changing constantly. So of course yeah it's a brand new series. So there's there's no way to know for sure. So I, you know rather than stress out about it, I, I'm just gonna you know sit back and and wait till things. Uh, get a little more finalized. Do you ever get writer's block when it comes to scoring your music? Do you ever get yourself into a situation where I do not know what to put here? We don't generally have the luxury of writer's block. We can't sit around and and go, well, I can't think of anything today, so, you know, take the day off. Well, I mean, uh, do you just put any old thing in there, if that's the case? I mean... No, you know, at some point, at some point when, when... when inspiration doesn't show up, you have to rely on craft, and you go with the techniques you've learned and, and the things you, you know have worked in the past. Sometimes I can be beating my head all day trying to write one minute of music, and, and by the end of the day, hate it. And then some days I'll write like six minutes of music, and it's the best thing I've ever written, and, and it was like the easiest thing in the world. So. It, it really depends on some unseen factor. The deadline basically makes things... Is it kind of freeing that way? It can be. If I'm really stuck on something, I'll, I'll be like, I can struggle with this for, for days, um, but, I, but it has to be done. So mm-hmm. you kind of you let it go. And I often will listen back to things and be like, I don't know what I was so stressed out about. It wasn't you know, It wasn't, it wasn't bad that bad. <laughs> Joel and I especially, we want at any given time to write better than we've ever written before, and, and we, we hold ourselves to such high standards that sometimes that'll drive you a little crazy. You're second-guessing yourself over and over again, and you're trying to force something to happen that has to happen naturally. And usually the times you're, you're not trying to, to write a masterpiece are the times you write the masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever missed a deadline? Nope. Wow. Nope. Now you did the Burning Crusade and Wrath of the Lich King uh, opening themes for the cinematics in the World of Warcraft MMO series. Yes. Tell us about that experience. They're much more fantasy driven in terms of sound than than Stargate is. You know, where do you go for inspiration from that? Do you play? I don't. No, to be honest, I I don't. Well, I don't play Warcraft, but I've played Starcraft in the past, and I. I, I love uh, first-person shooter games and that kind of thing, but I haven't actually played Warcraft. But um, I familiarized myself with the the lore, and they've written languages for for the game that I've actually written lyrics in both of those cinematics. I had to write lyrics for for the choir, and mm. I used uh, a combination of Latin as well as uh, languages that they had written for the in-game play. Mm-hmm. And they, they have you know all kinds of uh, history, and there's so much depth to the world they've created, even beyond the the game that they draw from creatively as a, as a 
as a company that you there's know, more there than a lot of people give it credit for. Yeah, I mean, to the extent content. Yeah, to the extent that they've they've you know written novels and and stuff based on that. That you know it's 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 really it's its own universe in so many ways, its own world mm-hmm. of Warcraft. besides besides Stargate that we should be looking out for in the near future well I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little more uh, work in games at the moment on a couple things that I can't really talk about yet but I'm hoping to be able to post information about it on my website soon and then you know Universe is, is on the horizon and um, looking forward to, to getting started on that are you satisfied with uh, where your career is at this point where do you want to find yourself in say 10 years um, retired with hundreds of million dollars. Um, no, uh, I would never retire. You know, it's no fun to that. Yeah, retiring um, is death. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I love love writing for film. I, I love the opportunity that film gives you to develop a theme and develop a score that has a, an arc to it—a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, that's always exciting. Games are a lot of fun too because you know you get to write free of picture and and the music that's being done in games is is very exciting right now. It, it's a very young industry, you know, the music for games. It's kind of an exciting time to be involved with that. And I think a lot of film composers are are looking to games now as as new outlets for music and for experimentation. Music in games now is it involves a lot of just saying, you know, hey, what what would happen if I did this? You can't really get away with that in a in a big Hollywood movie. Yeah. Yeah. You think it's one of the new frontiers for, for, uh, musicians to uh, stretch their legs. You think it's a direction that's going to be more and more prominent in the future. To, yeah. To some degree. On the other you know side of things, you have your, your independent Sundance kind of film that yeah. there, there's not a lot of games right now where you're going to, you know, score the whole thing with a Ron Rocco or some kind of a ethnic instrument like that. But, um, I think that the two things are, are, are both very exciting for me, I'm, I'm, I love the idea of experimenting with music and, and trying new things, trying new ways to, to move people emotionally and through music. So independent film is, is a great avenue for that, and, and games is as well. Wormhole disengaged. 